God wants us to pray for all everywhere for a quiet and peaceful life so that we can live with godliness and reverence and also see people saved and brought to the knowledge of the truth. Let's turn the Bible's place to Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 20. We're getting ready to make our declaration and so I just want to bring our attention to a truth here. Proverbs chapter 4, we'll read verse 23. Proverbs 4 and verse 23 and then we will jump to Matthew 12. We'll look at verses 34 and 35. Proverbs 4, verse 23, it says there, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Or King James would say, guard your heart. Guard your heart, protect your heart, be a watchman to your own heart. Guard your heart with all diligence, with all carefulness. You know, don't fall asleep, guard your heart. <laughs> With all diligence, because out of your heart come the issues of life. Uh, one version will put it like this. Out of your heart come the forces that shape your life. Your life, my life, our lives are shaped by what comes out of our heart. The forces that shape your life come out of your heart. So guard your heart, because out of it come the forces that shape your so that's good news, actually, because your future is not being shaped by what somebody else says about you. Your future is being shaped by what's coming out of your heart. Amen? Now, if you go to Matthew chapter 12, and look at verses 34 and 35. Uh, those are familiar verses for us. Uh, Jesus says, uh, how can, you know, you being evil bring forth good things? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then he says in verse 35, a good man, Matthew 12, verse 35, a good man out of the good treasure, a good deposit of his heart, he brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. So what you deposit in your heart comes out of your mouth. So what you deposit comes out of your mouth. And Proverbs says, out of your heart come the forces that shape your life. One of the ways Things in your heart come out of your life is by the words you speak. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your words are giving life or they're giving release to those forces that are in your heart. Make sure you put a good deposit in your heart, which is the deposit of the word of God. Always put the word of God into your that's the good deposit. A good man out of the good deposit of his heart will bring forth good things. Now what comes out of your heart, out of your mouth, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your words are actually releasing the forces that shape your life. You with me so far? Your words. is one of the ways that what's in your heart comes out. Your words. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth Speak. So we got to be careful, watchful about the words we speak. So speak words of faith. Speak words that are going to lift you. How, what do you want your future to be like? I remember a long time ago, a long time ago when we were in the U.S., I would say, I am going to go back to Bangalore. I'm going to raise up a church that's going to impact the city. And I wasn't even a pastor. <laughs> I had nothing. But I was speaking what I believed God wanted for me in my future. I'm going to raise up a church. We're going to have churches all across the nation. I had nothing, but I was speaking. I was declaring 
words that will shape my life. Maybe decades in advance, I mean many years in advance. Because out of your heart come the forces that shape your life. Amen? So what are you declaring about your future? What are you declaring about your life? Your words are shaping your future. Let's stand up to our feet now as we make our declaration this morning. Let's say it out loud, bold, and strong. This is God's word. This is God speaking to me. I am who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I will become everything God has promised. I'm saved, healed, delivered, redeemed. I am blessed, victorious, prosperous, triumphant. I'm a minister of God, a servant of Christ, and a channel of his blessing. To many people, I receive his word. I believe his word. And I live by his word. Christ is my master. And to him, I am in absolute surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to 1 Timothy, please. We started this study last week. We are going through chapter by chapter in Paul's letter to Timothy. And I just want to quickly give a little background to it. And then we will pick up in chapter 2 this morning. Remember last year, we studied the book of Ephesians, which was Paul's letter that he actually wrote when he was under house arrest in Rome. And uh, he, wrote, he wrote four letters from there in Rome. And one of them was his letter to Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. And um, Paul was briefly released after a two-year period of house arrest in Rome. He was released briefly. And he traveled back from Rome. He traveled uh, back into the west coast uh, um, of uh, Turkey. He actually traveled first to the island of Crete where he appointed Titus to take care of the church in Crete. Then he traveled with Timothy all the way up to the west coast of Turkey where in the seaport town of Ephesus. And he appointed Timothy to take care of the church in Ephesus. And then he makes his way back to Rome. So he comes across onto the other side, which is the eastern part of Europe called Macedonia. He comes there, and then he says, you know, I've, I need to write a letter to Timothy. Now, by this time, like we mentioned last Sunday, Timothy has worked alongside Paul for about 17 to 18 years. He's worked with Timothy. Uh, Timothy has worked with Paul quite a long time. It's a good training. And uh, he's been appointed pastor or taking care of the church in Ephesus and the churches that are connected to it. But Paul still feels the need to write to Timothy. So he writes the first episode to Timothy, writes 1 Timothy. And then he continues on to Rome. And from Rome, he writes his last letter, which is 2 Timothy. He writes back to Timothy, right? So that's how 1 Timothy, uh, that's the context in which they were written. So last Sunday, we went through chapter 1. And what was the main takeaway from chapter 1? Love, live and love out of a pure heart, clear conscience, and genuine faith. Wonderful. You remember that. Good. So that was the key takeaway from chapter 1. Let's read through chapter 2, the entire chapter, and then we will um, make comments on the verses there. So let's read chapter 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, 
that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful, peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. For which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. With propriety and moderation. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Amen. So, this is going to be an interesting chapter. Even if you sleep to the first part of it, <laughs> I know you're going to be awake for the, <laughs> for the last part. All right. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, remember when the Bible was written for us, it was not broken, it was not written in chapter and verse. It was one continuous book that he wrote. So, literally, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 was, was not broken. It was just a continuation of what he has written so far. So, when he says, therefore, I first of all exhort or encourage that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, that injunction is connected to what he has just said. What has he said? He said, in the previous prior, in the verses prior to this, he said that there are men who are wandering away or just departing from maintaining a clear conscience. And because of that, they are destroying their and then he points out two examples. He says, you know, Hymenius and Alexander, these are two people that you're familiar with. See, they, that's an exa they're an example of what I'm talking about. That men have gotten rid of having a clear conscience. They've stopped worrying about living with a good conscience. And so they've departed from the faith and made shipwreck of their faith. And Hymenius and Alexander are some of them. Therefore, I first of all exhort... That supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So what's the context? Because you're seeing this happen. Because you're seeing people who are going away from living with a clear conscience. And they're actually destroying their faith. Here's the first thing I want you to do. In the light of this, here's the first thing I want you to do. I want you to start praying. First thing, pray. And pray for whom? Pray for all. All people. Just pray for everyone. 
Because we are saying this problem happened. People are not having, not maintaining a good conscience. And they're wandering away from the faith. So what's the first thing to do? Pray. Pray. And then he mentions these four things. He says supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks. They're just different parts of prayer. Things that you use at different times. But for the sake of understanding, supplication is simply uh, an earnest plea. It, is, it is, has the idea of begging. You're, you're, you're making a plea from a disadvantageous position. It's like a beggar, all right? I'm not saying we're all beggars when you're praying, but I'm just trying to explain what supplication is, okay? That is, we recognize we are not in a very uh, uh, strong position, and so we pray, we, we present this request, a supplication, a request made by a suppliant to God help. Supplications, prayers, prayers is any kind of request for it to meet a need, prayer. Intercession is something you do on behalf of somebody else. Intercession. You pray for somebody else. And giving of thanks simply is thank the Lord. Thank God. So he says, in view of this, I want you to engage in prayer and pray for all people. Now, the King James or the New King James would use the word men. But I want you to understand that word men is the Greek word anthropos, which is a gender neutral word. And so in some of our versions, it would say people, which is the correct thing. It simply means pray for all people, not male, but pray for all people. How can we do this? Wherever you go, wherever you are, on the street, in the mall, in the classroom, in the workplace, just pray. Say, God, I pray for these people around me. I pray you intercede for them. You pray for them. And give thanks for them. Say, so God, I thank you for these people around me. So that's how we could do this. Right? Very simple way. Now, of course, if you want, you can take aside time, spend a day in intercession, prayer. All of that is okay. But I'm just trying to say how we could do this on a regular, ongoing basis. Everywhere you go, when you're driving through the city, you're stuck in traffic, great time to give thanks. <laughs> for all those around me, God, they're all stuck with me. Hallelujah. <laughs> Give thanks. <laughs> They're all in the same place. You can't move. <laughs> God, I give you thanks. I pray for all these people. That they will know you. That they will come to know you, God. That they will experience the truth. That they will be saved. So he says, I exhort first of all. That supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all. Verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority... That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So he says you pray for all people, verse 2, especially for those who are in civil authority. Now, when Paul was writing this, it was not an easy thing for Christians to pray for those who were in civil authority. Because at that time, the Romans were in charge. And the emperor, the Caesar of Rome, was this man called Nero. So Nero was the Caesar. Nero Augustus was a man in charge. Now, when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea and he said, I appeal to Caesar, basically he was saying, I appeal to Nero. Because Nero was in charge. And they said, okay, you appeal to Nero? That's where you'll go. And so they sent him off to Rome. And he had to wait for two years before he could actually get to meet Nero. 
No, some background about Nero, the man who was in charge, the Caesar. Caesar was a title given to the emperor. Nero was a very wicked man. He came to the throne after committing two murders at least. He killed two people in order to get the throne. He was the emperor in charge. Nero was a very wicked man. And uh, some of the things he did, uh, one of the uh, terrible things he did, which uh, later on is that he destroyed or he he got 70% of Rome burned down in order to expand his own palace. And in order to cover up what he did, he blamed the Christians. He said the Christians did it. So a terrible persecution broke out on the Christians. AD 67-68. Nero was such a terrible man, he apprehended the Christians and he made an entertainment out of them. He threw them to all these wild animals and let the people be entertained watching the Christians being eaten by these animals. He lit up his garden using Christians as human torches. This was Nero. So although Paul had a reprieve of a year after two years of imprisonment, Nero called him back. And in AD 68, both Paul the Apostle and Peter the Apostle were both killed by Nero. Little backgrounds. So when Paul says... I urge you, therefore, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, especially for those who are in authority. He knew whom he was talking about. Pray for Nero. Give thanks for Nero. You know, you and I are not really that bad a shape. And we have to pray for our leaders. We're not in bad shape. And we pray. Imagine when Paul told the Christians to pray for their leader in those days, it was tough. How do you pray for somebody like that? That injunction is no different to you and me. We pray for our prime minister. We pray for our leaders. Say, God, at least give thanks. Say, God, I thank you for whoever. No, they come and go. You know, every four years are elections. Things happen. Four or five years, things happen. People come and go. And uh, so, regardless of who is in authority at that time, the Bible tells us to pray for them and to give thanks. So God, I thank you. And what would be the outcome? He says there, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life. So this is the end we'll be praying towards. God, we want to lead a quiet and peaceful. And we want to live it in all godliness and reverence. That means we want godliness, reverence toward God to be established in our society. That's the second aspect of our prayer. We don't want that because of the leaders, ungodliness is promoted and furthered. No, we want, of course, we want peace and prosperity, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life. But we also want godliness and reverence toward God to be established in society. So pray. And then he tells us, verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So this is a good thing. Praying for our leaders, praying for all people, praying for our leaders. It's a good thing because it's going to result in this. It's going to result in the fulfilling the desire of God's heart. What is the desire of God's heart? God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So in order to see that happen, you and I engage in prayer. We pray for all people. We pray for everyone. We pray for those who are in authority so that there can be peace, there can be prosperity, and there can be reverence and, and, and reverence toward God and godliness established in, in society. 
but most importantly, that we could fulfill the desire of God's heart, which is to see all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is, this is the desire of God. So he wants people to be saved. And so our prayers are in, 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 in more than one way affecting these changes uh, around us when we pray. And then he says in verse 5 and 6, For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The Bible is absolutely clear, and this is one of those places where there is one God and there is only one way of salvation. One mediator between God and man. Sometimes people say, you know, why are you Christians so rigid? You only say there is one way. There's only one Savior. Only, you can only be saved through Jesus. Why are you so rigid? Well, the reason we say that is because that's what the Bible says. And we cannot say anything different. The Bible says there is one God. There is one mediator between God and men. And that is Jesus Christ. And he is the only one who gave his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is the redemption price. The price for our freedom. He offered himself to the Father so that you and I could be set free from everything that held us. That enslaved us. The devil held us in his grip. And every sickness, disease, all the evil things enslaved us. And Jesus gave his life as a redemption price. As a price to purchase our liberty, our freedom. And the Bible said there's only one person who did this for us. Who gave his own life as a ransom. So we may have many people who will teach us good things. That is fine. You know, live right and do right and, 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 and all be good. and Okay, all that is fine. But who will set me free? Who will pay the price for our redemption? One, Jesus Christ. He paid the price. Amen? So the Bible is absolutely clear. There's one God, one mediator, maybe God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom to set us free. He did it in the right time, and so now he's being announced, proclaimed, preached in the right time. Verse 7, for which, Paul says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I'm speaking the truth in Jesus and in Christ and not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Verse 7, two points I can bring, we can bring out from this verse. That Paul moved in more than one office. He was a preacher, evangelist. He was a teacher, and he was an apostle. So it's possible that God would raise people up who move in more than one ministry function. And that can happen in several ways. Either they're anointed to move in all three or in different stages of their journey, they move in different ones. We find, we see Paul moving in this. We know he also moved in some sort of a pastoral capacity because when he established churches in certain places, he pastored those churches. He shepherded those people. We also know he moved in the office of a prophet because he wrote for us many of the prophetic scriptures. So will the apostle Paul moved in all five of those ministry functions? And he's identifying three of them here for us. The next thing I want to point out in verse 7 is this. That you, Paul says, I, I was a preacher, teacher, apostle to the Gentiles. To a certain kind of people. And I firmly believe that there are people who are attached to your life. God sends you to a people. So when I say people, 
Traditionally, we used to think in terms of, you know, I go to a certain tribe or I go to a certain place. That's fine. But when you think of people, it could mean any subculture in society. God says, I want you to go after them. I want you to reach them because I have them assigned for your life. Certain kind of people. Are you with me? Paul says, I was an apostle, preacher, teacher to the Gentiles. There are certain group of people that are assigned for my life. Now, we would usually think hey, Paul is a Jew, so let's send him to the Jews. God says, you're a Jew? Fine, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Just do something different. Go. Because those are the people attached to your life. So it's so important for you and me to find out who are the people God has attached to my life. God says, I'm sending you to them. I want you to make an impact for them or towards them. I want you to make a difference in their lives. And as you begin to move towards them, the doors will open up. The favor of God will be on you. The hand of God will be on you. And impossible things will begin to take place. So you identify, God, who are the people, you know, that you want me to reach? Maybe it's urban youth. Maybe it's, you know, a certain kind of youth that God wants you to go after. Maybe it's, you know, somebody, in the, some sort of set of people in the marketplace or whatever. You go after them. They're assigned to your life. Verse 8. Having said all this, verse 8, Paul says, I desire therefore... That the men pray everywhere. Now, in verse 1, in the Bible, uh, I, I, when it said men, I mentioned there, it's the gender neutral word anthropos. Now, in verse 8, when he says, I desire therefore that the men, now it is a masculine word. is really referring to male, the, the, the male gender. And the Greek word is not so important there. But anyway, that Greek word there simply means male. So he's, he's really speaking to the men. And he says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere. So men, where are we supposed to pray? Everywhere. He says, look, having said all this, having understood what God's desire is, that we should pray, pray for everyone, pray for those in authority because of all these things, Men, pray everywhere. Get together and pray everywhere. So let's start doing it. You know, if two of us, three of us, wherever we meet, coffee day, or, you know, wherever you want to meet. It could be on the sports field. It could be in a conversation. Wherever. Men, pray everywhere. But when you pray, men, do this. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Lifting up hands is an act of surrender. Now, you can lift it up literally. But most important thing is you pray out of serenity, God. Lifting up holy hands without anger, without strife, without fighting with each other. And without doubting or disputing, quarreling. So when we pray, men, how are we to pray? With surrender, holiness, no strife, and no doubting. Pray like this. Are you with me? Yes. <laughs> All right. So men, we should get together, pray. Pray everywhere. And when you pray, pray in this manner. Verse 9. In like manner also. So women also pray. Not excused. But men, you also pray. But when you pray, here's what I want you to focus on. He says, 
that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. So he says, women, when you get together, when you pray, your focus should be on godliness and good works, not on these other things. Now, he's not saying don't comb your hair. Like he said, don't braid your hair. That means, you know, don't comb your hair. No, he's not saying that. He's saying, just as when the men get together and pray, they're focused. They, it's important that they do it out of surrender, out of holiness. They do it out of, without strife, and they do it without doubting. So also you women, you get together, you pray, that your focus should not be on these outward things, but you focus on God, godliness and good works, that you show that you are a woman who's pursuing godliness and good works. Are you with me? Now, some have gone to the extent of taking these verses and saying, therefore, women, no wearing jewelry. Because he says, no gold, pearls, or costly clothing. So how do you explain? I mean, how do you interpret that properly? So whenever you want to interpret scripture, you've got to interpret it in the, in the light of the rest of scripture. Right? So you don't take a verse in isolation and say, okay, therefore this, this, this. No, no, no. Yes, I understand he's saying that. Uh, you know, he mentioned specifically no braided hair, no costly apparel, no gold, no pearls, and all that. It's very specific. But how do you interpret it in the rest of scripture? What is the main thing that God is getting to us there? And I want us to understand that in that passage, he's telling us that the main thing is for women to focus on godliness and good works. But he's not saying that women cannot wear gold or pearls or costly clothing or braid their hair. That's not what he's saying. Why? Why can I conclude that? Because what do we see in the rest of scripture? And I'll just give you one example. In the rest of scripture, we see godly women wearing gold. Good clothes, and still they're women of God. One example is that of Sarah, Abraham's wife. She's referenced in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 3. And as an example of what a godly woman is. So let's look at Sarah, how she followed her husband, Abraham. But what do we know of Sarah? Did Sarah wear, have gold? Did she wear good clothing? So you go back to the book of Genesis, and what do you find? You find, yeah, she did. And when Eliezer went to find a bride for Isaac, what did he take with him? Lots of gold bangles. <laughs> Lots of these, you know, whatever things women wear. He went with all that, sent specifically by Sarah for her future daughter-in-law. So did Sarah wear all these things? Yes. But was she a woman of faith? Was she an example pointed to for us in the New Testament? Yes. So therefore, and I'm just using one example. Therefore, when we interpret what this, these verses are saying, when Paul is writing this, we do not jump to the conclusion that, you know, you women therefore should not braid their hair, should not wear gold, pearls, or costly clothing. No, no, that's not what the point is. The point is that, Women have to focus on godliness and good works, and then please dress modestly. Right? 
So you say, what does modest mean? It means that you're not provocative in your dressing because you have the eyes of the men watching you. So please be considerate to the men. <laughs> so be modest. And I can tell you as a pastor, when I'm preaching from here, if, lady, so if a lady is not dressed properly, I have to make sure I don't look there. <laughs> now, it's a little difficult for me, and I'm just, just saying this joking, I'm just telling you. It's a little difficult for me to concentrate on the sermon and also remind myself, don't look there. It's really tough. So you know, my tendency is I start look, I, you know, I keep surveying the whole crowd. I go like that, I go up there, and I make sure I make eye contact to everybody. That's just my natural way of speaking, and I do that all the time, whichever crowd. I always try to make eye contact with everybody, and I keep going, going. So now, for me to remember, don't look that side, <laughs> you know. So I have to come like this. <laughs> I can't do that. So have mercy on the preacher, you know. <laughs> Dress modestly, you know. Right? Okay, I'm just saying it in a jovial way. But what I, the point I want to get across is this. So when you dress, it's not just about what, for yourself. You've got to think about how it impacts the male. How it impacts the men around who watch you, who are going to get to see you. Whether it's in your office, whether it's in your college, whether you walk down the street, whatever. Uh, uh, the men are going to watch you. How is it going to affect them? Is it going to be provocative? So that's where modesty comes in. Enough said. Amen. <laughs> All right, so that's the main point that Paul is getting across. And, and, and women, I'll leave that to you to work on. So now let's go to verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, when you read these verses, you know, we can, uh, you know, you read these verses and say, okay, women, keep quiet. No preaching in church. Don't talk in church. And that's it. Period. Right? And you can jump to that conclusion or you can do what I said, which is when you interpret scripture, it has to be interpreted in the light of the rest of scripture. And be understood in the context in which it was written. So I'm going to do three things here as I explain this. And I'm, I'm, of course, I'm sharing with you my perspective of how I interpret these verses. Three things. First of all, what did the Apostle Paul, and I want to understand these two verses. What I do, first question. What did Paul practice in his ministry? Because I need to interpret what he's writing in the light of what he did. Everyone else. So we're going to look at that. Second, what was the context in which it was written. What was Paul addressing? Context. He was writing to the Ephesians. So let's talk about their context. Third, what do we see in the rest of scripture? Are you with me? So we're going to apply these three things in order to interpret these two verses. Let the woman be silent. Verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. But to be in silence, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So first, what did Paul, the apostle, practice in his own ministry? What was his own ministry practice? And I'll submit these things to you very quickly. When you look at the, the New Testament, you find that Paul in his ministry did not suppress women. He did not keep a woman from having a position of responsibility or leadership in ministry. I'll give you examples of it. 
But you look at, and in also his writings, for example, in Romans 12, and I'll just make reference, you can study this. Uh, Romans 12, verses um, uh, 4 through 11, um, when Paul talks about various membership gifts, or functional gifts, of teaching, of prophecy, of leadership. He says, these gifts are distributed to everyone. If he wanted to make sure that the gift of teaching and prophecy was only given to men, he would have used that very male-specific word and said, prophecy and teaching is only given to men. Didn't do that. He said, Romans 12, 4, that to each one, gifts are given. Each one, male and female, gifts are given. And in that list is teaching, is prophecy, is leadership, is giving, is exhortation, and the list there. So those gifts, functions, those ministry functions are available for both men and women. Then when he talks about the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, which includes the gift of prophecy. He says very clearly in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians, and also in chapter 14, that these gifts are available for all. For all. So can women prophesy? Absolutely. So what is prophecy? You've got to come and say something. You've got to speak something. So can a woman speak in church? Well, if she has to prophesy, she has to speak. You all with me? Then, in the uh, same chapter, in 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, and I'm just, we're just examining Paul's ministry. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, he says, How is it, brethren, when you all come together, every one of you has a prophecy, everybody has a doctrine, a teaching, a psalm, a tongue, and an interpretation. That means all of you are coming together, and you, there are people, male or female, you have a desire to teach something. And then he says, go ahead, but do it decently and in order. So 1 Corinthians 14, 26, even teaching, he does not say Teaching is only for men. He says, all of you, when you come together, every one of you has these gifts. Go ahead and exercise it, including teaching, but do it decently and in order. What else do we see Paul practicing in his ministry? When he talks about the ministry gift, Ephesians 4.11, which is the apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. He says that the Lord has given these gifts to men. The word there is anthropos, people. So it's not just to the male. So all of us think only men can be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, if I'm not true. It's for people, God's people, male and female. Otherwise, if I use this very male-specific word saying it's only given to men, only men can be apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and say, no, 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 no. The word there is anthropos. It's literally correctly translated as in other places, people. He has given gifts to his people, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. Paul, what did he practice in his ministry or write in his ministry? We see that Paul had Aquila and Priscilla, husband and wife, lead the church in Corinth. Otherwise, he would have only put Aquila. Priscilla, keep quiet. Sit down. <laughs> no. Aquila and Priscilla were leading the church in Corinth. They were the one who trained the man Apollos and raised him up as a leader in Corinth. And later on in Romans 16, uh, verses 3 and 4, he recognizes Aquila and Priscilla as his co-workers, fellow workers. I mean, why would he put Priscilla's name along if he didn't bother about women being in leadership position? Are you with me? And in the same chapter in Romans 16, verses 1 and 2, he recognizes Phoebe. 
Let me, would you want to take a guess? Guess, would that be a man's name or a woman's name? Phoebe, a sister, a deaconess, a, lead, a, a woman leader in the church. And he says, I, he tells the others in Rome, I said, I want you to assist her in whatever she has to do. In the same chapter, Romans 16, verse 7, he mentions another woman's name, Junia. And says, Junia is a leader and of note among the apostles. Meaning, she herself is a leader, a woman leader, a co-worker of the apostle Paul, a fellow prisoner. And she is acknowledged, recognized by all the other apostles, Junia. So, point is this. In his ministry, he did not suppress women. You are with me so far? He encouraged and he recognized them in their positions of leadership, whatever they are doing in church. Second aspect of when we want to understand these verses is the context. In all of Paul's epistles, there are things that are written for all believers of all time. But there are also things that are written that are very specific to certain believers in their time. So you, we cannot take things that are contextual and apply them to today's church. Right? Otherwise, we would have to have a compulsory practice, greet each other with a holy kiss. <laughs> That's in the Bible. But it was contextual. So we don't do that. Handshake is enough. <laughs> so we don't take those kinds of things and enforce it in our day. Because we understand he was addressing something that was cultural, local. But then there, are, there is truth that is transferable. Truth always translates and truth transfers. It's for our day and time. Whichever language you speak, it's relevant. So, in when he, for example, when he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he addresses a local issue. There was a man, young man who was in sin, so he deals with that. That's a local issue. It was a, at that time, he had to deal with it. Then in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, he deals with the covering of the hair, at the head. And he tells women, you know, you, be, uh, you know, cover your hair. Again, it was contextual because in that same chapter he says, but we don't have this custom in other churches. We don't push this in all the other churches. I'm addressing something very local in the Corinthian church. Then when he comes to chapter 14, he addresses certain issues. And he tells three kinds of people to be silent in church. In chapter 14, 1 Corinthians. He says, if anybody speaks in tongues, but there is no interpreter, let them be silent. That means you don't give a message in tongues if there's no interpreter. Now, this is just a little side note. You know, some people wonder if we are a Pentecostal spiritual church because they don't hear me shout in tongues on the mic, you know. So I literally had somebody come and say, is this a spiritual church? <laughs> like, I said, why do you ask? Of course we are spiritual. Why, why do you ask? No, but you don't shout in tongues on the mic, you know. <laughs> so their understanding of, you know, a spiritual church was that. The pastor has to speak in tongues from the mic. I don't do that. I pray hours in tongues during the week at home or, you know, by myself. But when I'm standing here, I speak in a language we all understand. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, you know, if you speak in tongues and there is no interpreter, keep silent. Same thing he tells the prophets in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, prophets, you take turns one by one. If you have a prophecy, you give it. But once you're done, you keep quiet. You sit, remain silent so the next person gets a chance to prophesy. And in that context, he says, women, if you have a question, be silent so that you can go home and ask your husband. So all three people tell them to be silent. But some people only pick women, be silent. No, there's a context there, right? 
He tells all three people to be silent. Why? Because he wants things to be done decently and in order. You understand it? But we can't take that one verse and say, women, therefore be silent in church. Don't be quiet. You know, no, no, no. He's not telling women not to speak in church, not to prophesy, not to teach. Because in the preceding verses, like I pointed out from verse 26 of that same chapter, and in, 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 in other verses, he's encouraging all to prophesy, all to participate. But it says there are times when we have to be quiet so that we give other people a chance and we do everything properly in order. So there are things that are very contextual. So what was the context in which 1 Timothy was written? What was Ephesians about? Ephesus was a city that worshipped whom? It was a city that worshipped the goddess Diana. A female goddess. No, no, male, female. They worshipped the female goddess. Goddess Diana. So the priestess, the women priests of the goddess dominated everything. They dominated. They ran the show, right? Because goddess Diana in charge of Ephesus. And we are her women priests. Now that is what Paul does not want to be replicated inside the church. In the church. Women, outside, sure, the priests, women priests are dominating. The goddess Diana is up outside there. But in the church, we follow God's government. What is God's government? In God's government, he has put the man as the head of the Woman. So God has a government, an authority structure. Husband, head of the wife. That's God's government. It does not mean that in God's economy or in God's spiritual dealings, he gives preference to the man over the woman. That's not the case. In, in, as far as spiritual blessings, we are co-heirs, men and women. In fact, the Bible says in Christ there's neither male nor female. Nothing. We are equal. But in terms of government, the way God administered administration in government, he's put the man in charge of the woman. And he says, in the same thing, when you come into the church, we honor God's government. But we, it does not mean we forbid women from exercising their spiritual endowments that come from the Holy Spirit. If a woman has been endowed by the Spirit of God to prophesy, we let her prophesy. If she is called by God in the ministry function to teach the word, we will encourage her to teach the word. If she's called by God in the ministry office of a teacher, we will encourage that. We will not suppress that because God gives those gifts to men and women equally. You all with me? So this is how. And the third aspect is what do you see in the rest of Scripture? Throughout the Bible, we find that God has anointed and has used women all along. Right from, we, we mentioned Sarah, Miriam, Moses' sister, was a prophetess who sang. Deborah was a prophetess whom God used. And what was the lady's name who nailed the man on the head? You know, Jael was a woman God used. Some people remember. <laughs> Sorry. Jael was God used her to defeat the enemy. Uh, Esther, you can think about Esther. You, you can think about Anna, the prophetess in the New Testament. You can think about Philip's daughters who prophesied. Uh, and you can remember the promise in Acts 2. God says, I will pour my spirit on sons and, and they will all prophesy. I mean, so you look at the rest of Scripture. God does not withhold his blessings from uh, women. 
So we need to understand these three verses in the light of all of this. That women being in silence in the church and submitting to men is having to do with respect to God's government, your flock and leadership, but it is not a suppression of their use of their spiritual gifts and flowing in whatever God has called them to flow. So can a woman teach the word? Of course she can teach the word. Can she, can she be used in any of the ministry function? Of course she can. But everything has to be done properly, decently, and in order. If you agree with me, you can say amen. If you don't, that's okay. <laughs> All right. Last two verses. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Now, some people use verse 14 to say women are so gullible. Now, that's not what Paul is saying. That is not what Paul is saying. He is just stating a fact that the serpent deceived Eve. He came and told her, did God really say? He didn't have a conversation with Adam. Adam knew exactly what was happening. And knowing everything, he still ate. But it was the devil who lied to Eve. He didn't lie to Adam. He, he was having a conversation with Eve. He lied to her. And she was deceived. She was cheated. And she ate. But nothing like that for Adam. Adam knew what God had told him. Nobody had told him otherwise. And he still ate. And so Paul is just stating what happened in the garden. In uh, Here verse 14. So we don't use 14, verse 14 to say women are so gullible or keep them away. No. That's not the point. The point is just stating a fact here that the serpent deceived the woman. Verse 15, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So what does this verse mean? The word, I just want to point out there that that, verse, that word is saved is that beautiful Greek word, sozo. It's beautiful because that's the word for salvation. That's the word used most commonly throughout the New Testament when talk about being saved uh, and salvation. It's a comprehensive word. It includes in it forgiveness of sins, healing for the body, deliverance from trouble, preservation from harm and danger, air protection. All of that is included in that word sozo. That same word is translated many different things in different contexts because it's a big word. It's a comprehensive word. And so here in this context, he's saying, She'll be saved in childbearing. So what happened because of the fall? Because of the fall, one curse was Adam had to toil so hard to make the ground produce. He had to work hard. The other curse was the woman would bring forth children with much pain. That was a consequence of disobedience coming in. But now Paul says, look, we know what happened. We know God's government. Adam is ahead. And he needs to walk in subjection. We know all that. We know the woman was deceived. And here he's saying, though, yet this woman, a woman will be saved when bearing children. That she can go through with bearing children without any problems. She'll be preserved in it. So women, as you are, you know, those of the women who are going to have children, you can use the scripture that, look, his, the word says, I will be saved. I'll be preserved. I'll be kept. During child birth. And that word salvation, I want to point out that word salvation is a comprehensive word. It's used to talk about the reversal of the, the curse that came in because of the fall. So that blessing is ours 
uh, yours, ladies, <laughs> through the cross, right? For you to believe God that says, look, I will be saved in childbearing if you continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So Paul is concluding that whole thing there um, um, as, he, as he brings this to a close. Amen? All right, so I hope you got something out of it. So what can we take away from chapter 2? Main thing, key points from chapter 2 is this. I want you to pray always, everywhere, for everyone. Because your prayers matter. Use all kinds of prayer. Supplication, prayer, thanksgiving, intercession. But pray. Men, you get together, pray. Women, you get together, pray. Make sure it's backed up with the life of holiness. So men, you pray with holy hands, surrender. Don't get into strife and fighting and doubting. Your life needs to be backed up. Your prayer needs to be backed up with that life. And women, same thing with you. Don't worry about clothing and all. You dress decently in order. But with godliness and good works as your focus. And you pray. Women, you pray. Men, pray. Because your prayers is what will cause or enable us to live peacefully. To see godliness and reverence have established in society. And most importantly, to see people come to the knowledge of the truth. So pray everywhere. Amen. Let's stand to our feet, please. I'll just call our worship team up here. Before we close this morning, I'd just like to give an invitation for anyone here who's not believed, who has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. As you read from Scripture this morning, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. He gave his life as a ransom for everyone to set each one of us free from the things that held us, that we, that we were enslaved to, from the devil, from every work of darkness. We were enslaved, but he gave his life as a ransom. Ransom is a redemption price to set us free. This morning, if there's anyone that you've never personally received Christ, the Lord Jesus as your Savior, as your own Lord to ransom you, to set you free. Then I would like you to make that decision this morning. If you would pray with me and just make that decision. If you've never done it before in your life, if you've never asked Jesus to come and set you free, and make you a child of God and forgive you your sins and make you a new person. But you feel inside your heart, I need to do that this morning. And I want you to pray this simple prayer with me, please. Just pray with me. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins. And make me a child of God. I thank you for being the ransom so that I could be set free. 
Help me to follow you. And you alone. The rest of my life. I pray this in Jesus name. Father we ask oh Lord. That you will give us this grace. To pray. At all times. Everywhere. For all people. And especially. For those who are in authority. God as we see people around us. Let our hearts be moved. To pray for them. To even give thanks for them. Help us to pray. Help us to do that, God. We're going to take a few moments and in your own words, in your own way, I would like each of us to take the next few moments to pray for someone. Just pray for them. It may be for a need that you know in their life. It may be a supplication, a request that you are, something you're pleading for them on their behalf. Or it may be just giving thanks for them, saying, God, I thank you for them. Could you just take a moment to pray for somebody else, someone? Could we all take the next moment just to thank God, to give thanks for our Prime Minister. Just thank him. Say, God, we thank you for giving us our Prime Minister. The Bible says, thanksgiving, give thanks. Thank him. You may, we may or may not agree with everything he does. That's not the issue right now. The issue is let's give thanks. For whoever is in authority and pray that the peace of God will be on our nation. We pray that godliness and reverence toward God will prevail in the decisions that are made and that people will be saved. Just take a moment to say, God, I thank you for our Prime Minister. If you want to extend that to the state, Pray locally as well. That's fine. Just go ahead. Just give thanks.
Father, we just thank you for those who are in authority over our nation. God, we pray for our Prime Minister. We pray for all of his cabinet ministers and all the people in authority. We pray even for locally, God, for our state government. Father, we just pray that they, each of these men and women, Lord, in authority will encounter Jesus Christ, will have the opportunity, God, for an encounter with you. We pray that their hearts will encounter Jesus, that they may come to know you and be saved. We pray for righteous for a righteous government, God. We pray for righteous righteousness to prevail over our government, over the leadership of this land, so that, God, we may live a quiet and peaceful life and that in all godliness and reverence throughout this land. And we also pray that the gospel will flourish and move unhindered across this land. Let the gospel just increase and multiply throughout this land because God, it's your desire that all men be saved and come to know the truth. And we pray this, Lord, together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God our Father and the sweet fellowship of His Holy Spirit continue with each of us always in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org Also visit our website apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.